Chapter Thirty Two of The Mystery of the Hidden Room. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mystery of the Hidden Room by Marion Harvey. Chapter Thirty Two Lee's Story. Despite his arm, which he had redressed himself and which was quite stiff, McKelvie was up ahead of me, and when I came down at noon, attired in my own garments, McKelvie had phoned Jenkins to bring me my things. I felt quite like myself again. "'Has the doctor been here?' I asked as we had our luncheon. "'Yes, but he will be back later. Lee is still asleep. We shall hear his story this afternoon.' Then he sighed. "'I wish we had been able to catch that old chap. I am positive he is the murderer.' I felt it in my bones when he looked at me, and my bones are quite infallible, I assure you. And he smiled whimsically. It is a pity, I said, for then this business would be over. When we rose from the table and went back to the living room, McKelvie moved about restlessly and then said impatiently, I wish the doctor would come. I want to get at the boy's story as soon as possible, for I think he may help us locate Cora Manning, and we shall have to work fast now if we expect to catch the criminal. He's too clever to hang around much longer, now that he knows the game is up, as far as Mrs. Darwin is concerned. I heartily endorsed McKelvie's words, for I was eager to hear what Lee had to say, but he did not waken until five o'clock, and the doctor, who had come in some time previous, forbade our disturbing him. When we finally mounted to his room, Jones, McKelvie, and I, we could hardly wait for the doctor's assurance that he thought it would not harm the young man to talk. As we gathered about the bed, Lee leaned back against his pillows, his hollow cheeks flushed, and his black eyes glittering strangely as he looked at us. I heard Jones mutter something about eyes like a madman's, which Lee evidently overheard, for he turned to the doctor with an appealing glance. "'Before I begin,' he said in a weak voice, "'I want you, doctor, to answer me a question. Am I perfectly rational and sane?' "'Yes, perfectly sane,' responded the doctor, quietly. Lee breathed a sigh of relief. "'Please remember that, gentlemen,' he continued. "'I may look mad, but I'm not. No, nor have ever been, though at times I thought I was pretty near to it.' He paused to gather strength, and then he told his tale almost without a break for it gripped him too vitally to admit of his stopping once he had begun. To explain my actions, I must go back to the morning of the 7th. I testified at the inquest that I quarreled with my uncle about Ruth. I lied. We quarreled about Cora Manning. At this name Jones leaned closer, a greater interest in his face. I met her a year ago when she came to New York to study for the stage. Three months ago we became engaged, and I gave her, as is customary, 
a diamond ring. Later I introduced my uncle to her. Instantly he evinced a great interest in her, cloaking his infatuation, I know it was that now, under the guise of a desire to aid her in her career. He took her out a number of times, and when I protested, she accused me of being jealous of my uncle, which she said was unworthy of me if I loved her, since my uncle was an old married man. To make a long story short, on the morning of the seventh, as I was leaving the house, my uncle called me back into the study, and there showed me the ring I had given Cora, swearing she had bestowed it upon him to return it to me, as she no longer cared for me, and was coming to see him there in the study that night. He had the ring on the little finger of his left hand, and he pulled it off with a laugh and held it toward me. I snatched it from him and flung it in his face, and would have leaped upon him to strangle him then and there, but he read my purpose in my face, and like the craven that he was, he called to Orton to come into the room. Then he ordered me to leave his house, and I went out by the window, vowing vengeance upon him. I hurried to Cora's and accused her of treachery declaring I'd kill my uncle before he should have her. I was mad, crazy, and refusing to listen to any explanations, I rushed away and bought a pistol. That evening I hung around the house on Riverside Drive. I would wait her arrival and then go in and kill them both. I saw my uncle let himself into the house, and about an hour later Mr. Davies arrived but still no Cora. I began to think I had been a fool, but determined to wait a while longer just to make sure. About 11.45, for I looked at my watch as I reached the gate, I saw her coming down the street with a suitcase in her hand. Mad with rage, I hid behind some bushes and followed her as she turned into the grounds. It was very dark, and I lost her as she slipped around the house. I decided to enter by the front door and confront them. Then I recalled that Mr. Davies had not yet gone, and determined to try the windows. I crept to the second window, and by means of my flash saw that the shade did not come level with the bottom of the window. I knelt down and applied my eye to this space. By looking upward from the extreme corner of the window, I discovered that I could see what my uncle was doing. The room was dark except for the lamp that threw its rays over the table and chair, and in the latter my uncle was reclining, asleep. Then as I looked, suddenly Cora appeared beside the table, and in her hand she carried a small pistol. She pointed it at my uncle and just then the light went out. I judged that she had shot him, though I heard no sound, and so paralyzed with horror was I that I remained where I was gazing into the darkness of the room before me. How long I stayed there I don't know. Presently I thought I heard the sound of a step on the walk. I wrenched myself free from the entangling ivy and hastened to the gate. 
There was no one in sight. For a long time I stood there, debating whether to go back or not, and then I came to the conclusion that if she had really shot my uncle, she needed every minute to get away. I fled the place and paced the streets in an agony of suspense. In the morning I returned to the club, where I slept until noon. When the steward woke me, my first thought was for Cora. I dashed around to Gramercy Park. She was gone, had been gone since the night before. Then I rushed up to my uncle's house, thinking she might have been caught. I found the coroner in possession. Persuaded that Cora had killed my uncle, and not seeing her present, I determined to shield her by denying all knowledge of her. After my testimony, I went upstairs to my rooms, gathered together a few necessary articles, and went back to Gramercy Park. She was still missing. I thought of advertising for her and had gone as far as the Herald office when it occurred to me that by locating her I would only be putting her life in danger. Dejectedly I returned to the club once more and there found a written message awaiting me. I read and destroyed it, but the words are burned into my brain. Lee, my darling, I killed him to save my honor. If you love me, help me to get away. I could not bear the notoriety of a trial. Meet me at the corner of 23rd Street and 3rd Avenue, and I'll be waiting for you in a brown taxi. Cora. I told the steward to hold my rooms as I was going south on business, and took a taxi to 25th and 3rd Avenue, where I dismissed the man and walked rapidly to 23rd Street. Lee paused and drew a gasping breath, whereupon the doctor hastened to administer a stimulant. "'The car was waiting?' prompted McKelvie. "'Yes, and when I appeared, the door opened and a hand beckoned. I entered the car unsuspectingly, but I was no sooner seated and the door had been closed. It was dark as pitch inside, since all the shades were drawn. Then I felt a hand on my face and smelled something that made me gasp. Some instinct warned me not to breathe, and I thrust out my hand and my fingers closed on a man's rough coat. Then I realized I'd been trapped and flung myself toward my assailant. He grasped my throat and thrust a handkerchief over my face. The deadly fumes got into my lungs, for I felt myself suffocating, and drawing a deep involuntary breath, I fell unconscious. When I came to, I was lying in the room where you found me, and a couple of ruffians were guarding me. I do not recall much of this part of the affair, for I was kept in a semi-conscious state most of the time, and left absolutely alone all day, with little or no food. I have an impression that once every night I was shaken into consciousness by someone who spoke in a harsh whisper and asked me a lot of questions about the murder. Fearing for Cora, I refused to answer. 
Every day I grew weaker, and every day the harsh voice grew more insistent, until the man, whoever he was, started to torture me as well. The day before you rescued me, I lost all consciousness of what was going on, for my mind had been partly drugged, I believe. I guess that's all, except that I want to thank you fellows for getting me out of there. Lee closed his eyes wearily, and Jones scratched his head in perplexity. "'If what he says is true,' whispered Jones to me, "'where does Mrs. Darwin come in? He must have dreamed all this. Darwin was shot at midnight.' "'He didn't dream that he had been held a prisoner, at least,' I returned. "'As for the rest, I presume it's all true enough.' And I turned toward McKelvie to get his opinion on the matter. "'Mr. Darwin,' McKelvie said, as Lee opened his eyes again, "'are you strong enough to answer some questions?' "'Yes,' Lee answered. "'Describe the man who questioned you.' I never saw him. The room was always dark. I heard his voice, that is all. It was always a harsh whisper. But wait, once I put out my hand and felt a beard, long and silky. McKelvie nodded quickly. What questions did he ask you? He asked me where I was the night of the murder, and he kept saying over and over, Someone you love is in danger, and when you tell me what you know about your uncle's murder, she will be freed. I had a feeling this was another trap, Lee went on, since if I told him that she had committed the murder, they would send her to prison. I had no idea what his connection with the affair might be, but I determined not to be caught napping again. "'There is no connection between him and the murder,' responded Jones authoritatively. "'We've got the criminal locked up this minute.' "'Oh, have you?' returned McKelvie sarcastically. "'Just listen to what I have since discovered, Jones.' And he sketched rapidly the main facts in the case. They listened spellbound as he told of the secret entrance and the second shot, declaring that Darwin was murdered at 11.40 by the man we had seen in the curio shop, that this man was keeping Cora Manning a prisoner and had deliberately set about implicating Ruth in the murder. Jones's eyes grew wide with astonishment as he listened, for it upset all his preconceived ideas. "'Then she didn't kill him. Thank God, thank God!' sobbed Lee, quite overcome by all he had been through. "'No, she didn't kill him,' returned McKelvie kindly. "'And now we are going to do our best to find her for you.'" End of chapter 32